And not only is it not true that we are the greatest because we are the freest, but rather precisely the opposite is true. We are the freest because we have those qualities that make us the greatest. Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. In each podcast, Devorah and I interview the authors of one of the essays we've published in our journal. The audio you just heard is from a recording of the late Justice Antonin Scalia delivering a commencement address at his granddaughter's high school in 2015. It was the last of many commencement addresses Scalia delivered as he passed away months later in February 2016. To talk to us about that speech and many others from Scalia, we're extremely fortunate to have Adam J. White with us. Adam is a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and he also teaches administrative law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Um, and at that, at that law school, he also directs the School Center for the Study of the Administrative State. His excellent essay in our fall 2017 issue, which we'll be talking about today on this podcast, is titled Antonin Scalia, Legal Educator. Let's start with the bid from Scalia's speech at Stone Ridge High that we played at the outset. Um, Adam, you say that throughout Scalia's message there, that America is the freest nation because it is the greatest nation, he in a sense came full circle, echoing a largely forgotten 1986 address in which he used almost exactly the same language. As you note in your essay, that address was the fourth annual Seton Newman lecture. Could you tell us a bit about that speech? I love talking about this speech, and I'm so glad Great. to be here uh, to meet the power behind the throne so glad you're here. at National Affairs. <laughs> I I stumbled upon that 1986 speech um, right after Justice Scalia died. Uh, as you mentioned, he gave the speech just months after he joined the court. He actually agreed to give the speech before he was nominated, while he was still a judge on the D.C. Circuit. And it was a speech for a Catholic organization here in Washington, D.C. And the speech wasn't what you would normally think of as what we come to think of as the normal Scalia topics, uh, separation of powers, constitutional law, and so on. It was a deeper reflection on the relationship between law and um between law and morality, between individual conscience and uh, liberty and democracy. Scalia gave so many speeches throughout his life, some number of them collected in uh, a book that came out a couple of years ago, edited by Ed Whalen and Christopher Scalia, called Scalia Speaks. And that book was a real treasure because it gave you a window into the way that Scalia talked about the Constitution and our country and faith outside of uh, legal opinions. His legal opinions are famous for being so well written and lively, but they're still within the four corners of usual legal discourse. They, they all arise in a given case. They're focused on the specific legal issue. They sort of take for granted the background principles of law and just work within the four corners of the case. But in, in his speeches, he was able to go a little bit deeper and explore the themes that are at the foundation of our constitutional law. And this 1986 speech is no exception. It was actually published published uh, months after it was given um, in a journal called Christian Legal Studies. Um, this article was largely forgotten and virtually never gets cited. But the book was called Teaching About the Law, and it was, or sorry, the article was called Teaching About the Law, and it was a discussion of legal education and the need to teach virtue and morality in legal education, and also was a discussion of the relationship between, or, or the proper relationship between a Christian's individual beliefs uh, and his allegiance to his country. And just one last thing, throughout Scalia's entire career, he was often pushing back against criticism that his legal views were dictated by his religious beliefs. And people would say, well, you're, um, you're, you're against Roe v. Wade because you're Catholic. And he'd say, no, there's no Catholic way to read a statute. And that's true. But what this speech really points you towards is this deeper relationship between his Catholic faith and his view of democracy and his view of law. And we'll talk more um, about that texture a little bit later. But um, to backtrack a little, 
Uh, you mentioned that in a tribute to her late friend and mentor, Justice Kagan wrote that Scalia used to say that students were one of his target audience, audiences sorry, and that his opinions mesmerized law students. Scalia himself said that he wrote his dissent specifically for law students in a surprisingly candid 2013 interview with New York Magazine. Can you talk about how he wrote for students and what distinguished his opinions? Well, Justice Scalia's dissenting opinions were particularly lively and colorful, famously so, sometimes pretty aggressive. Um, He said that those dissents especially were written for the law students. Anytime a justice is writing a dissent, it means that he's on the losing side of the argument, that he disagrees with the majority of his colleagues. They're writing the opinion for the court. He's writing a dissent that counts for nothing other than being a message of why he disagrees. And he says, I write for the law students because hopefully future generations of law students will understand that I was right and my colleagues (laughs) were wrong. Uh, But Justice Scalia was great with students. He loved to talk to student audiences. Maybe I don't know if maybe he didn't love to, but he definitely spoke to a lot of student audiences. Uh, Justice Kagan knew him not just as colleagues on the court, but before that, uh, a couple jobs before that, she was dean of the Harvard Law School. Justice Scalia had a longtime relationship with. And she knew firsthand, as she mentioned in that memorial to Justice Scalia, that Scalia's opinions and his in-person talks had a way of really capturing the attention of students, even students that disagreed with him. They often, or, or who were predisposed to disagree with him, they found themselves agreeing maybe sometimes even more than they wanted to <laughs> with Justice Scalia. So he had a great knack for getting at the attention of law students uh, and getting his point across with the goal, hopefully, of educating the future generation that would agree with him rather than with his, his benighted colleagues. <laughs> And uh, Adam, you mentioned in your essay uh, a trip to Colorado where you actually met Justice Scalia and you experienced his, quote, enthusiastic disruption. I was wondering if you could mention uh, that trip and uh, your interaction with him. Yeah, I couldn't help but sneak this story into the article. Um, it's a little bit a little bit, a little bit, bit silly to sort of insert my own anecdote into the article, but I just couldn't help it. When I was in law school, um, truth be told, I wasn't that interested in constitutional law. I came to law school planning to be um, like a technical intellectual property lawyer or corporate lawyer, an antitrust lawyer. But I got more and more engaged in the constitutional law as I went. And in the summer between my, my second and third years of law school, I learned about a Federalist Society program where Justice Scalia and Professor John Baker from Louisiana State um, co-taught a course on the separation of powers. And they did it in I think it was Vail, Colorado. It was somewhere very nice. It was for basically for, for practicing lawyers, but anybody could come. And I had just finished my summer job in D.C. and had some money burning a hole in my pocket. <laughs> and so I, I flew out to Vail to take a three-day course with Justice Scalia. And it was, it was really amazing. It was a special thing getting to hear Justice Scalia um, discuss opinions that he wrote, discuss opinions he descended from, discuss some of the famous Supreme Court opinions. Um, and you get a you, you would get a window into how he saw all these pieces fitting together. And he would debate with his colleague John Baker. He'd debate with those of us in the audience. And he took special attention. He paid special attention to the students in the audience. There was a I can't remember how many, but there must have been at least a dozen law students in the audience or young people. And he really kind of looked out for us during the breaks. He chatted us up. Um, and it was in that class that it really invigorated or reinvigorated my interest in constitutional law and played, a, I think, a large part in my reorienting my interests and what I wanted to do with my legal career. I mean, I ended up practicing law for a fairly long time, and, and I enjoyed my legal practice. But after that class, it was always I always had sort of an eye on the broader and deeper constitutional debates um, because of that um, up close um, experience with Justice Scalia. That's great. Mm. Um, in talking about Scalia's critique of modern legal education, um, you also mentioned his famous 1997 book, A Matter of Interpretation. Um, you note that he defended textualism by diagnosing why too many judges and lawyers pay too little attention to the words of written laws. And you quote, you say that American lawyers cut their teeth upon the common law. Uh, could you talk a little about what Scalia meant there and particularly what he meant by the common law? Sure. Well, let's start with textualism, right? Textualism is the idea that judges should interpret a written law according to the way that those words were best understood by the public at the time the law was enacted. It Today seems like kind of common sense. Yeah, to understand a law, you should understand what it meant at the time it was passed. But quite frankly, as Justice Scalia said from time to time, when he originally joined the Supreme Court, 
That was not the way that people talked about the law. You wouldn't – there would be entire oral arguments in a court where the judge, the judges and the lawyers wouldn't even talk that much about the specific <laughs> words in a statute. They'd talk more about what Congress intended, what were the debates in Congress and so on. <laughs> Scalia really helped usher in a new era of lawyers and judges focusing on the meaning of the words in the law that was passed by the legislature. And Scalia in this book, A Matter of Interpretation, where it was a – he didn't write the entire book. He wrote the introductory essay and a closing essay and in between there were responses by famous lawyers, uh, Lawrence Tribe, Marianne Glendon, Ronald Dworkin, um, responding to him. And in his opening essay, which is really wonderful, he says that law students are put at a disadvantage because before they get to any of the legal interpretation where you're interpreting written laws, your opening courses in law school are what we call common law courses, torts, contracts, property law, defined in part by written statutes but mostly sort of judge-made law, cases that arise one at a time, the legal doctrines unfold. And Scalia says that the common law as it was seen in the 20th century really becomes a willful attempt by a judge to reach the best result uh, and where necessary sort of dodging the precedents or the statutes that would be in your way. And he uses football metaphors of almost like you know Walter Payton or today it would be um, – Today, who are the great running backs today? I'd say Todd Gurley, but he didn't do so well in the Super Bowl. He did not. Um, but, but, um, but, but, but you have running backs dodging all these defensive players coming in to tackle them and jumping over these precedents that you want to avoid <laughs> until you get in, you score your touchdown and you make good law. And Scalia says that experience in law school gives law students the wrong impression about what a judge should be doing in this other sphere constitutional law or legal inter- or, or statutory interpretation. And so he, he said that lawyers need to sort of overcome that. Law students need to mm-hmm. overcome that and understand that interpreting a written text is very, very different from the common law way of judge-made law and that it's especially important in democracy where ultimate or a, a republic where ultimately the law is written by Congress or is written by a legislature that a judge has special duties to follow that law and not make law in place of the legislature. And this again is a theme even of that 86 speech um, uh, that later became an article where Justice Scalia says that in democracy, it's especially hard sometimes to take seriously the lawgiver, right? Because we know these people. We elect them and we know that sometimes they're they're, 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 they're bozos. Um, but ultimately, Scalia says the law has a moral claim to our obedience. And this he traces all the way back to St. Paul's letter to the Romans in the Christian New Testament um, where St. Paul tells the early Christians to obey earthly government. And similar in the way that Jesus told people to give to God what's God, give to Caesar sure. what is Caesar's. Government has a claim to our obedience. And for Scalia, again, as a Christian, he traces that back to, to Christian Americans uh, or American Christians, um, both giving God what is God, but also still giving earthly government its due, for better and for worse. Mm. Yeah, and Adam, that um, idea of the Christian attitude toward the law, we're definitely going to get to that a bit later in the podcast. We look forward to talking with you about that. Um, Also, you mentioned a 2014 speech that he gave at William & Mary Law School, Mm -hmm. um, and where he talked, this is kind of going back to law school curriculum, um, how was, there was the entropy of it, there were all these law and courses about all these specific things, not necessarily the law as a whole, but a kind of um, subdividing into different things, Um, and that also that this got away from law as a profession, Mm -hmm. became, and lawyers started to treat it as law as a trade. Can you talk a little bit about that distinction and what Scalia was getting at there? Yeah, this is a great, a great, great speech, and I highly recommend people look it up, mm. where Scalia focuses on law as a profession, not just a trade or a craft where you're, you're learning technical excellence, but a profession involves the combination of technical excellence and also some moral or ethical commitments. Um, so it's not just building the best, you know, whatever it is, you know, a, a craftsman could can can build a great table or a craftsman, an engineer can build a great weapon. Um, but a profession like the law involves both the technical skill and these higher duties to the bar, to the courts, to the country, 
uh, and of course, one's own moral duties to yourself. And Scalia, this comes up in the 24, like I said in the article, it's full circle, is he talks about it in 2014. He raised those themes in 1986, yeah. um, urging lawyers to understand that law has a, a, a an an unbreakable tie to moral duty and to virtue. And, and law is something we have to sort of fill the gaps when people fall short of moral um, behavior on their own. But lawyers as lawyers should understand that what they're doing ultimately is for higher ends. And we need to take seriously those values. Now, on the, the point about the law and classes, Scalia, he came back to this a couple of times. In law schools today, there's a proliferation of classes. Um, there's law and economics, law and gender, law and society. I took a class in law school in the early 2000s called, um, oh, what it was something like um, – uh, internet and society colon law and technology. So like doubled up. <laughs> so law got in there. It, it was, yeah, yeah, it was like a quarter of the <laughs> class. Maxing out on the things. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. And Scalia in this, this 2014 speech worries that law schools are diluting the legal content. Um, they're not teaching as much of the core courses anymore. They're, they're not focusing as much on that. They're focusing more on these other sort of intersections, you might say, of law and other areas. And Scalia urged law schools, and here he's doing it in a, in a commencement address, he's urging law schools to refocus on law per se and the profession of law um, and, and to not um, divert attention or dilute the student's time with all these other law and classes. The law and classes are an easy target. And of course, they're, they're, it's worth taking some of these classes, law and economics, law and gender, whatever you're most interested in. These are good things. But it's important that you're going to law school, not law and school. And <laughs> yeah. you need to focus on law and the legal profession yeah. when you're studying it. Hmm. Um, going back a little bit to something you said earlier, Adam, um, I thought it was interesting that Scalia sort of criticized the, quote, fun and exhilarating experience of the first year law student. Um, but he also made very sort of exhilarating opinions. You know, he was famous for his writing. So yeah. it, maybe it was a way of him showing you can have an intellectually exhilarating time, mm -hmm. even if you don't do this particular, bro quote, broken field running, you know, the whole football metaphor. That's right. Thing. The, the exhilaration that he was sort of joking about for first-year law students is the exhilaration of a judge being in a position to do what the judge thinks is right. Um, to do what the judge thinks is right, to reach the right result in, in absence of law or even in spite of written law. Um, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's sort of the epitome of the, the you know, or the, 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 the hero of 20th century common lawyering, he one time said, the merit of the common law is that you decide the case first and the principle afterwards, <laughs> right? That you pick, you know, in your gut, you understand what the right result is, and then you reverse engineer a legal, mm. um, a legal explanation. That's that's exhilarating for a young lawyer who thinks, oh, someday I'll be a judge. Someday yeah. I'll be able to do these things. And your whole first year of law school, you're reading these judicial opinions that are all signed by famous judges or unfamous judges, but all judges who are in a position to decide a case, declare somebody a winner, somebody a loser, repair an injury, um, and declare what the principle, what the law is going to be. As you say, Scalia's own brand of judging and and the work of a judge it's also exhilarating these bracing legal opinions he shows that you can have fun um he also he and his colleagues show that you can disagree bitterly i mean he was very caustic in some of his opinions maybe maybe too caustic sometimes <laughs> but you could still be friends you know famously with ruth bader ginsburg mm -hmm. and others on the court right. scalia showed that that um you can have fun while you're doing these things not every case is fun i used to be an energy lawyer and believe me the cases that come out of the federal energy regulatory commission not not always fun i found them <laughs> exhilarating in their own special way most people wouldn't but scalia show that you could have fun while taking these things seriously. Right. And Adam, uh, switching gears a little bit, um, talking about how Scalia viewed constitutional interpretation, he had this famous essay, um, Originalism, the Lesser Evil, mm -hmm. kind of making the case that, um, you know, his, his goal is not to prove that originalism is perfect, but it's kind of the best option out there for legal interpretation. Can you talk a little bit about that essay? Definitely. That, that essay is one of three that came out in a very short period of time. They're all speeches that he turned into short law review articles. This is in about 1988 to 89. One of them was called The Rule of Law as a Law of Rules. 
Um, the other, another one was on judicial deference, the relationship between courts and agencies. But this one, maybe the most famous of them, is Originalism, the Lesser Evil. And by the way, isn't that an interesting title, the Lesser Evil? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First of all, there's the moral component. But second, it's an acknowledgment in the very opening of the article that even originalism is not perfect, right? We're not dealing with um, a, a realm of, of perfection. We're dealing with earthly government necessarily flawed. And so the point of the article is a defense of originalism or textualism, as I said earlier, at a time when it was still very new. And he's comparing it to the more we often call judicial activist approaches to judging. And his bottom line ultimately is if you're given a choice between originalism, treating the Constitution as a fixed document whose meaning doesn't change until it's formally amended, and you're comparing it to the living Constitution where its meaning just changes over time according to whatever the current Supreme Court wants it to mean, that originalism isn't perfect. It's sometimes hard to apply. It sometimes will lead you to indeterminate results. Originalists can disagree amongst themselves. But Scalia thought those flaws are much – they are the lesser evil. They are much less dangerous and worrisome than the other approach, especially in the context of democracy and in the context of judging. Mm. Uh, uh, an originalism whose, whose major downside is that it's just technically difficult, that's something judges can deal with. That's something judges are well-suited to do. They're lawyers. They're taught to tra – they're trained to interpret texts. Whereas the alternative, basically putting in judges of what the Constitution means over time, is a much deeper – it raises much deeper problems, especially in the context of a self-governing democracy. I, I just want to say to listeners, um, those three articles, they're all worth reading and they're worth reading together. It's really funny to think that Scalia in this year – and I don't – maybe he wrote one of them early and it just kind of sat in his file for a while. But to have those three articles all come out at about the same time in the same year – Originalism, the lesser evil, the rule of law as the law of rules, and judicial deference um, to, to agency interpretations. They really were – this is Scalia just two years into his time on the court. They are raising the themes that he would elaborate over the course of his legal career. And so much of what he's trying to do in his later opinions is to bring the law back to the things he's discussing in those essays. Even even things that he – doctrines he agreed with when they sort of went in directions he didn't like, you can see what he's trying to do in those cases as trying to bring things back to these first principles or second principles that he had developed um, early in his time as a judge. It seems sort of like the way um, his Cena Newman lecture yeah, worked out too. Absolutely. Great. Um, so another question. How does all of this fold into Scalia's critique of um, Christopher Columbus Langdell from Harvard, who developed another model of legal education around 150 years ago or so? Right. Well, this brings me back to memories of Harvard Law School. Well, Christopher <laughs> Columbus Langdell, he was a 19th century figure. He's really the, 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 the father or godfather of modern legal education. The idea being that instead of treating law as um, instead of treating law as all sort of one cohesive body of thought, um, break it down into subparts, subjects, and then study it the way like a zoologist studies the things in the cage <laughs> cages. Um, take individual cases, um, look at what judges do in individual cases and from that try to glean the principles that are animating the judges. Treat law the way you would treat a, a area of scientific study where you're inducing – I think hmm. I'm using the right – no, that's not right. You're, you're deducing the underlying um, the underlying principles from these case studies. Um, Scalia, I mean, he was, a, he, he was a graduate of Harvard Law School. It's not as though he was against the case study method. But I think Justice Scalia understood that the roots of some of the modern problems in legal education really come back yeah. in some ways, I guess since all legal education comes back, to Christopher Columbus Langdell mm -hmm. at the Harvard Law School turning um, law into more of a scientific study. And, and, and again, mm -hmm. sort of taking it out of these these interrelationships with um, with morality, with virtue, and with democracy. Right. Do you think that sort of spawned the law and world in a way too? 
Well, I mean, since Columbus, Christopher Columbus Langdell started it all, I mean, you could trace anything back to him mm-hmm. in legal education. I'd say the, the, the closer thing to, to bring it back to is what we call the legal realists. This is the movement in the early 20th century where law professors, especially at Yale um, – no offense to no offense to <laughs> Yale, but but professors at Yale and elsewhere, who, especially who were sympathetic to FDR and the New Deal, tried to strip away some of the majesty of law, strip away any kind of mystique about law or the idea that that law is a, is a again a profession, a higher calling, and f- treat it as an area of scientific study, try to look at what you really think is animating judges when they decide cases. Mm-hmm. It really was an effort to break it down and make law just, an, you know, as we sometimes say, politics by other means or, or war by other means. <laughs> um, law, I mean, again, the name legal realism. Let's be realistic about what the judges are really doing here. And of course, we all do that sometimes, right? A Supreme Court case comes out, you disagree with it, and you say, well, I think what the judges are really trying to do (laughs) is this. Um, That really was the origin of the law and classes, because that was the beginning of saying, we should study law and its context in connection with sociology, or we should study law and its relationship to economics. Now, note that's not a conservative or a liberal movement. Law and economics for a long time was seen as a conservative bastion. Mm-hmm. Law and sociology, law and gender, critical legal studies, critical race studies, those were more seen as progressive endeavors. But conservatism too has had its own sort of approach to legal realism in terms mm-hmm. of law and economics. Um, so yeah, Adam, with this distinction between uh, how Scalia would have viewed judging as finding or discerning the law versus kind of the realist Holmesian view of making a law by decree almost or mm-hmm. kind of finding your own value judgments in the law. Um, you talk about how that could raise some issues with especially how the American people view the courts and how legitimate they view the courts as being. Mm-hmm. Um, you include a great quote um, from Scalia's dissent in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Yeah. I'll just quote from that now. Uh, a free and intelligent people, he wrote, uh, know that their value judgments are quite as good as those taught in any law school, maybe better. And uh, we were thinking that this sounds a bit like uh, William F. Buckley's claim that, you know, he'd rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone book uh, than 2,000 people at Harvard, uh, the professors there. Um, So, you know, how did Scalia view this in terms of why is textualism and originalism so important to um, ensure that the American people trust the courts, that they view their decisions as legitimate? Yeah, there's a great line in that dissent. There's a lot of great lines in that dissent. (laughs) But there's one, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something like the majority opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was more or less reaffirming Roe's right to Mm. abortion. He said it faces two problems. One is that America loves democracy, and two is Americans aren't fools. (laughs) And the idea was... To the extent that the court wants to be in the business of making value judgments on behalf of the country on a closely contested area of policy and morals that doesn't have a strong root in the actual constitutional text itself. The Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. Mm. The more you try to stretch things like the 14th Amendment's you know, protection of liberty to create and protect these rights against the rest of the democracy – the more the people are going to get fed up with it. Um, and um, he said the people will ultimately have their say. And he tied this to the Supreme Court confirmation process. And this is Planned Parenthood v. Casey is right after Justice Thomas's you know, infamous mm-hmm. confirmation hearings, Robert Bork getting shut down yep. by the Senate at a time when people were really starting to worry about just the, the venom and animosity of Supreme Court confirmation hearings, Scalia said to his colleagues, opinions like this will make the problem that problem worse, not better. Mm. And that to the extent that the, the court becomes a policymaking body, the people will have their say through the confirmation of judges. Mm-hmm. And that confirmation hearings will and should devolve into a process of senators just asking, you know, checking through their laundry list of preferred rights and asking this, you know, future justice, will you support this right? Will you support that right? Scalia said the more we do that, the more we make that problem worse. And for him, Planned Parenthood versus Casey was perhaps the epitome, maybe the worst example (laughs) of the court making policy in a hotly contested era area um, in spite of democratic preferences to the contrary. 
I think, Adam, that seems to have only gotten worse. I mean, if you look at the Kavanaugh conference, I mean, Scalia seems pretty prophetic in pointing out that that issue there. You mean in terms of the Supreme Court confirmation? Yeah, just becoming more contentious. And as you said, senators not really focusing on the law, going through their laundry list, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Now, to be fair, value judgments have always been a part of constitutional law. I mean, you go back to what Chief Justice Marshall and the Supreme Court was doing in the early, um, the early 19th century. When it was construing the Constitution to have strong national power and you know strong and and flexible legislative power, um, the court was making value judgments. Obviously, uh, um, often controversial, um, contested value judgments, but value judgments all the same. I really I think it's impossible to say that the court could ever be out of the business of value judgments. So I don't want to overstate this. Sure. But yes, Scalia thought the problem was getting worse, especially in the context of the 14th Amendment and Fifth Amendment's protections of liberty, Hmm. um, undefined liberty. And you have to understand Scalia was – he was himself a product of the mid-20th century era in the Supreme Court where Chief Justice Earl Warren and the Supreme Court were creating all sorts of rights or recognizing all sorts of rights um, that weren't written expressly in the Constitution. And so much of Scalia's – legal career was an effort to push back against that, push back against the courts micromanaging state legislatures, micromanaging um, the executive branch, um, trying to create space for that. Now, of course, Scalia wasn't, wouldn't hesitate to um, you know, write or join opinions that pushed back against politics, pushed back especially against federal power um, in a couple of cases, not all of them. But um, Scalia saw his work as more closely tied to the original meaning of the Constitution, and he saw what he was doing as the best way to strike a balance between the rule of law and um, the rule of democracy. Um, to talk about value judgments from a slightly different angle, um, and to return to the Seed and Newman lecture that we discussed yeah. earlier, yeah. Um, you noted that, and you noted this earlier too, that throughout Scalia's career, Critics such as Dahlia Lithwick and Jeffrey Stone and Linda Greenhouse um, have asserted or implied that Scalia's legal rulings on at least some issues were dictated by his Catholicism, which Scalia, of course, roundly refuted. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Seat of Newman lecture, as you said, um, he did somewhat trace the roots of his constitutionalism to his beliefs. Absolutely. Um, and as you mentioned, as we said before, Scalia was always pushing back against critics who said his views on abortion, gay marriage, and other things were mm-hmm. – his legal in- analysis was dictated by his Catholic views. He wrote a, a, an essay in um, First Things, the, the, the Christian um, mm-hmm. magazine. I think the title of it was God's Justice and Ours, where he tried to – it was on the, the much different topic of the death penalty. And he was he was explaining what the church's position on the death penalty was, what the work of a judge mm. in applying the death penalty was, and why he saw his work as a judge as to, as being totally consistent with um, the the view of the church on the death penalty more generally. Which, it, but what I mean is, as the church took a more and more skeptical view of the death penalty. Scalia felt free to continue to approve the use of the death penalty in our constitutional government. He didn't see those things in conflict. Okay. So he had written often about the absence of a a relationship between his Catholicism and his legal interpretation, right? His, His views on death penalty, abortion, gay marriage, other things aren't dictated by his Catholicism. But here in this 1986 talk, the Seton Newman lecture, uh, Scalia is addressing a Christian audience, and he's trying to explain to this Christian audience how they, especially Christian lawyers, by the way, and Christian judges, should understand the relationship between law, um, sort of earthly law, and the higher law of, of Christian belief. And he made three basic points that I sketch out in this 2017 article for National Affairs. The first, again, sort of hinted at by his later essay, Originalism, the Lesser Evil is he urges his audience to recognize that law is an exercise in second bests. Earthly government is not perfection, um, quite the opposite. Conservatives used to have a line, I always mispronounce it, but they used to say, this is a, a National Review line, they'd say, don't imantize the eschaton. Oh, right. the eschaton. Right. <laughs> right. In a way, that's what, what Scalia was, was saying in this essay, that law is an exercise in second best. It's the thing we do as human beings in society to remedy or, or fill the gaps of people not acting in what we see as a moral way. Um, 
of course, earthly institutions are all flawed because all institutions are flawed. And our framers recognized this when James Madison wrote in The Federalist that we need to create a, a government fit for men who aren't angels. And so Scalia's first point in the speech is Christians need to understand that law is an exercise in second best. The second point, he traces this to the New Testament um, Christian Bible um, letter from St. Paul to the Romans, is that law has a moral claim to our obedience. Again, Paul's writing to Christians in Rome, right, in the first century, right? So even, you know, whatever we think of our current time and (laughs) whether religious believers have a a tough go under sort of modern government, uh, it's nothing compared to Christians in Rome in the first century. And Paul is telling his, his audience that even even in that context, earthly government has a claim to your obedience in the same way that, again, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. And again, Scalia says, it's hard for sometimes hard for Christians to recognize this. It's also hard for Americans in democracy to recognize this because, again, in democracy, ironically, you know, we, we, um, we elect our government – Yet we hold them probably in, le- in, in lower regard than other people might hold sort of unelected leaders. Maybe it's that old line, familiarity breeds contempt, right? And we're familiar with our elected officials and so we hate them. <laughs> um, but Scalia says we need to take seriously as Christians and as, as small d Democrats the point that law has a moral claim to our obedience. And, and by the way, those first two points, law is an exercise in second bests and law as a moral claim to our obedience – It's not hard to see that translate in Scalia's view of judges, right? Judges, because law is an exercise in second bests, judges really should not try to pursue perfection because pursuit of perfection brings judges to go beyond written law, to not be bound by it, to try to do whatever they can to perfect earthly government through constitutional law. Scalia says, no, the job of a constitutional judge is to enforce the Constitution for better and for worse. And second, law has a moral claim to our obedience. Scalia would be saying to judges, you need to take democratic law, whether it's statutes or um, the Constitution, you need to take them seriously and obey them. You're not higher than them. Then the last point, because, the again, the talk was called teaching about the law, Scalia says that when law professors teach students about the law, but they don't stress to students that law has this connection to Republican virtue and a moral virtue. Um, you're giving students a real desiccated view of the law. You don't understand that the best protection of liberty is ultimately to live a virtuous life. If we all live virtuous lives, and of course we're not perfect, so we're not going to be perfectly virtuous. But the more we strive to that, the less cause there is for government to step in and legislate and to bind up, bind down our freedom. Um, so the first protection of liberty, even before the separation of powers that Scalia respected more than any other judge perhaps, was the idea that self-restraint is the best protection against um, unself-restraint, right, against, against government restraint mm-hmm. of you. So three very subtle points that come off, um, as always, with Scalia in a very thoughtful way in this old speech. Seems like almost each of them could be tied to the virtue of humility, particularly. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Can, can I can I throw one other thing into the mix in all please, this? Please. Again, we think of Scalia as a judge and as a justice, um, and we think of his judicial opinions. I love reminding people the fact that Scalia. I mean, he wasn't always a judge, um, and at one point he was even a lowly think tank staffer. He was at the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute, right. where he worked alongside for a brief time, but he worked alongside people like Walter Burns and Irving Kristol and um, future judge Lawrence Silberman. And in one of Kristol's memoirs, there's a great sort of um, reflection back to the days when Burns and Kristol and Scalia and Silberman and Bork and whoever else was there, they'd have lunch together at AEI. They'd all bring you know brown bag lunches and sit around and talk about these things. And and so one of the things I enjoyed about the National Affair, writing the National Affairs essay, it wasn't just pointing back to um, – Scalia's speech. It's also pointing back to some of the ways in which his work, his writings in, in the 80s echoed or, inter, or, or resembled some of the thought of Walter Burns. Mm-hmm. Now, Burns, you know, Burns loved to cite Lincoln, obviously, cite Tocqueville. He never really came back. Scalia didn't cite Tocqueville and Lincoln so much yeah. in his judicial opinions. But these speeches are very Tocquevillian. And in fact, the book of speeches that came out after I wrote this piece, the Scalia Speaks book, the Tocquevillian and Lincolnian and Washingtonian influences on Scalia's um, thought really come through. That's one of the really great um, 
one of the great things of, of, of Waylon and, and Chris Scalia doing that book was seeing these underpinnings of Scalia's thought that you don't get as much in the judicial opinions, but they really shine through in the speeches. Right. You mentioned uh, Walter Burns' book, Making Patriots, in your mm-hmm. essay, and how he quoted Tocqueville there. And Tocqueville talking about um, religion in America, it, it doesn't take a direct part in the government society, but is the first of their political institutions. It's indispensable, I think he says, mm-hmm. um, to America's political institutions. Uh, and that's, again, that point that um, freedom, to, to really be a free society, you need virtue as well. And can you talk about, about how that, that Tocqueville idea that Burns mentioned also figured into Scalia's thought? Well, it really comes through in Scalia's opinions that I talk about in the article, things like Lee versus Weissman and other late 20th century cases in which the Supreme Court majority um, seemed to work harder and harder to exclude religion and public expressions of religious belief from education. Now, of course, I'm not saying that public schools should be religious schools. I went to Catholic school. I don't think all schools should be Catholic schools. Um, I liked mine. Um, Obviously, we need to have diversity in our education and different types of schools. But Scalia was very worried that the court's efforts to extinguish, you know, more or less organic expressions of faith um, in public educational ceremonies and efforts to strip away teachings of morality and virtue in schools, that that would have a real ruinous effect on on the future of liberty. And I think that's right because after all, schools are that first place where people learn about, about government, learn about um, the, their role in civic society and civil society. Um, and to take out all of that, the morality, the Republican virtue, and so on, it really, um, as I said, it presents students, it teaches students a real desiccated view of governance and democracy. It really does sort of take to a cartoonish extent, um, a cartoonish degree, the idea that, that politics is nothing but ambition counteracting ambition and sort of a war of all against all. And the framers recognize that, yeah, we need checks and balances and we rely on ambition to counteract ambition. But the framers also understood that in addition to all that, we need yeah. things like Republican virtue. Yeah. And Burns, um, what a wonderful and dearly missed scholar, mm. Walter Burns um, at AEI, more than maybe anybody else wrote about this. Again, that book that you mentioned, Making Patriots. Mm. Patriots don't make themselves. They have to be made <laughs> somewhere through American yeah. institutions. And so yeah. Scalia never tar- – I mean in the speeches, he comes back to this actually quite a lot about virtue morality and education. Um, it doesn't come up as much in his opinions, except in these cases like Lee versus Wiseman or the, Verm- the Virginia Military Institute case, where he quotes at length the code of conduct that these, these boys at this all-boy school you know, were, were, were ostensibly dedicated to. And Scalia worried that the effort to, um, to turn VMI into a co-educational school, something that, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and others pursued for very good reasons um, um, that that victory would come at the cost of something. And Scalia said this is going to come at the cost of, among other things, this type of special atmosphere in which boys or young men are instructed in a code of honor um, in, in, you know, in the context of, of, of tradition that radical change to the school by introducing um, female students in. Again, there's a lot of good to be said for that. I, I have four <laughs> daughters. I'm all for I'm all for um, you know girls getting the best education they can, and I always enjoy sure. you know I take special pride when when they're out, out you know out doing their boy classmates and things. <laughs> so so obviously yeah. coeducation has many many great benefits, but there yeah. is something lost when you take something like VMI and you radically change it. And Scalia, as with so many of his descents, he's um, Maybe I'm misusing the term. Is is he is this a Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. but he's he is sort of calling attention to what's being lost. Yeah, right. um, Right. When we make these choices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you noted that in the Stephen Newman lecture that he said that law steps in. Um, you know, when the virtue or prudence of the society is is basically is lost, is inadequate. In fact, I think he has a line. He says, "Law steps in," and then, like a parenthetically, he says, "and inevitably steps in." It inevitably in. steps in. And yeah. Inevitably steps in, yeah. like water filling an empty vessel. Um, or, 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 you know, gas expanding to fill a room um, when it's not filled by these other things. Um, so how, how do you think practically that we might push back against this, this sort of 
you know, need to have law step in? And how, how can we sort of influence legal education to inculcate virtue? Well, that's a, that's a not, tough ex- not exactly an easy question. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot the of time. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I just mm-hmm. uh, last fall at the Hoover Institution interviewed a former law school classmate of mine, a friend, um, Justin Driver. He's one of the great, great law professors in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a contemporary of mine, so you know he's in in his late thirties, early forties. He's at the University of Chicago, and he's on the left. And he wrote a great book about um, about schools and the Constitution. And it's a story about sort of the unfolding of individual liberty in the context of schools and the court becoming more and more aware that students are citizens, they have rights like anybody else, and the court needs to protect the liberty of students in schools. And I like that story, but what worried me about it, and when I interviewed him at Hoover, we talked about this some, was that all of this expansion of liberty at schools comes at the cost of of in some ways of education, of the moral education, of imposing upon the students um, certain value choices before they're in a position to choose them for themselves, mm-hmm. right? That the schools, you know, schools, again, with Walter Burns and Making Patriots, schools have to choose. They, they, they inevitably make value choices of one way or another. Either they're valuing patriotism and they're teaching it or they're saying we don't value this and it's not something worth, you know, we say we don't teach it, therefore it's not worth teaching. Um, if the schools don't take an active role in teaching values, um, then they leave, you know, they're, they're basically conceding the space to the wrong values. Now, of course, conservatives have always had a complicated relationship with this, right? When William Buff Buckley Jr. writes God and Man at Yale, he's arguing that schools, universities need to do more on behalf of their alumni and trustees to impose certain values onto the student body, to, t- to teach certain value judgments. Today, conservatives, since you know, more than a half decade later, God, so many decades later than God Man at <laughs> Yale, um, we forget what an old book that is now. Um, now, with conservatives really more or less on the outside of academia looking in, right, drastically outnumbered mm-hmm. among the faculty, we've moved to a position where we argue, well, schools shouldn't impose values on the students because we're worried that schools impose the wrong values on students. I'm on the board and proudly on the board of an organization called Speech First, which promotes free speech on campus. Hmm. Of course, it's not called speech only um, because there are other values we have to keep in mind. But conservatives today are very reluctant to say the school should be in the business of teaching values because we're worried that they'll teach the wrong wrong values. Absolutely. But I think we do need to take seriously what's been lost when that aspect of education falls away. And I guess I still haven't answered your question. I'm like filibustering now. No, no, no. (laughs) Ultimately, it has to begin with families and other institutions, things like the Ethics and Public Policy Center where we're recording this. Um, I'm I'm very lucky to get to teach in programs like the Tikva Fund and the Hertog Foundation and the Hudson Institute Political Studies where we – over the course of a summer, will work with sub- subsets of students and help sort of supplement their education with this deeper education in civics and uh, and um, you know American values. But that's touches such a small part of American students um, that there really needs to be more done um, in communities through nonprofits um, and in in the home to teach these values because schools really don't anymore. Right. Yeah, Adam, so I guess, I mean, from a judge's perspective, Scalia would say we need to allow those institutions the space to inculcate that virtue. Don't impede on that. But then it also requires the second part, as you said, those communities themselves need to work on rebuilding these institutions. Right. Since this being national affairs and being a, a Uvalde event <laughs> operation, I always like to say you need to preserve space. Right? Uh, yes. The government needs to – Mediating make, institutions. That's yeah. right. <laughs> need to need to preserve the space for these things. But that's what Scalia was trying to do mm-hmm. and these opinions like Lee versus Wiseman, which had to do with prayers at um, at, at public school graduations. That the government sh- – that the courts should not race to step in and, and squash – these um, traditions um, at the local level um, when the Constitution doesn't squarely require it. The, the, the court should err on the side of restraint and leave room for these things to, to arise organically through the community. And that requires um, judicial restraint. It also requires a commitment to federalism where the other parts of government at the federal level leave space for communities. And then as your last point, as you said, then it requires those lower parts of the, the, the lower levels of government 
and the, the communities themselves to energetically fill that space. Yeah. And that's too often lacking, too. We're great. We, we love it when the, the Supreme Court or Congress says, we're going to leave this to the states. <laughs> yeah. But then we forget the states need to do something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Need some help, too. Yeah. Great yeah. point. Um, you also mentioned uh, Marianne Glendon's book, Rights Talk, um, as containing similar arguments or themes to much of Scalia's work. Yep. Um, so how do the trends in modern education that Scalia warned about contribute to what Marianne Glendon called a relentless individualism? Yeah, this is a wonderful book. Um, it came out in the mid-80s, and the title sort of says it all, Rights Talk, a, a political discourse in which everything comes down to, I have this right, I have this right. And of course, I like rights too. Again, I'm on the board of a speech first. Um, I believe in religious liberty. I believe, you know, I believe in the Third Amendment. I don't want soldiers to be quartered in my home uh, without my permission. Um, but when politics becomes all about rights and the absolutes of rights, and it becomes, then it, it therefore becomes less about democratic deliberation and compromise. And we lose the ability, like like unused muscles, we, we lose the ability to actually undertake that form of politics. And Glennon was warning against it at the time, and she was focused primarily on political discourse, but she was saying it's being deformed by this rights talk that begins with the legal classes, with the lawyers and the judges who speak almost exclusively in terms of rights mm -hmm. versus um, um, notions of compromise, let alone notions of duty. Right. So another thing in your piece that I really liked and found fascinating was um, you noted that Scalia would occasionally remark on what he called the two Thomases, which yeah. were his hero, St. Thomas More, and also Thomas Jefferson. Um, could you talk a little about the contrast he drew between these two men? Yeah, this, this great speech, the two Thomases. <laughs> you know, Thomas Jefferson, the man who took the Bible and the Christian Bible and, and deleted. Right. Yeah, he blue-penned it. <laughs> yeah. um, it's like, like, like today he'd get out a Word document, right? And it would be redlined, you know, with a lot of deletions. So Thomas Jefferson took, um, took the Christian Bible and deleted out the things that he thought were unworthy of mankind. Whereas... Um, St. Thomas More gave up, gave up all of his, his earthly power and ultimately his life, right? Gave that all up um, in service of his higher duties, right? Um, the line about about Thomas More, right? I'm God's, you know, I'm I'm your the king's servant and God's and God's servant first. The recognition that he had duties both to the state and to a higher power. And he tried to reconcile them as best as he can while keeping in mind his ultimate higher obligations. But for justice, uh, sorry, for, for, for St. Thomas More, another line Scully like to come back to, Scully would say, drawing from the New Testament, we need to be fools for Christ. Yeah. Um, St. Thomas More being willing to look foolish, even in the eyes of his wife, mm. um, a line that, that Scalia discusses, I think it's in the article and it comes from the play A Man for All Seasons, mm -hmm. where even St. Thomas More's wife is sort of astonished that he would give up his earthly authority right. because of his belief that what the king was asking, you know, namely to approve his, his, his uh, you know, unchristian un divorce was legitimate. His, his, everybody thought this was utterly foolish, and Thomas More was willing to be seen as a fool. As Scalia said, all Christians ultimately um, are, are, have to be willing to be seen as fools. We'd be, right. be fools for Christ, as it's, it's often said. Um, Scalia would take that over um, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson's belief that we need to sort of delete the, the, the foolish portions yeah. of the New Testament. The other Thomas that Scalia would sometimes talk about, and it's not in here, but I think actually the last speech Scalia gave, he gave it here in Washington, D.C., at the I think the Catholic Information Center. I wasn't there, but I heard about it. And it was a criticism of Thomas Aquinas and oh, Thomas really? Aquinas's sort of view of law hmm. and the idea – I'm going to butcher this um, because I wasn't there for the speech. But if I remember correctly, um, Justice Scalia was criticizing the idea that you know an unjust law is no law at all, right? Hmm. We understand this. I mean at one level it's true of course. Um, on the other hand, an unjust law, if it's constitutional, remains a law that is – to which you owe your obedience. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Scalia, he just, I guess, liked to pick fights with people named Thomas, whether it was Jefferson <laughs> or Aquinas. And it's pretty yeah. classic Scalia to go into the Catholic Information Center and <laughs> say, yeah, today we're going to pick a fight up. with Thomas yeah. Aquinas. So. Um, I really yeah. like the quote you included from uh, Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, mm. that um, you, you have to be willing to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Yeah, Scalia mm. definitely did, did not mind that. Scalia was sophisticated <laughs> himself. Um, 
And I mean, he traveled in elite circles and he remained friends with people with who he disagreed with. But ultimately, he understood that people were always going to see as a little silly the things that he and other Catholics, um, you know, the, 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 the nature of our faith. Um, and he didn't shy away from that. I think that kind of applies to conservatives more broadly, too. Yeah. You know, we're often sort of scoffed at, I feel, a little bit yeah. to yeah. some yeah. extent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, so we just wanted to close. Um, you had a, a lovely quote um, from Father Paul Scalia, yeah. um, just the son, of course, yeah. uh, the homily he gave at his father's funeral service. I'll just quote a little bit from that now. Um, that, uh, you know, his father saw the founding as a blessing, but it was, quote, quickly lost when faith is banned from the public square when we refuse to bring it there. Um, he also said that uh, his father, quote, understood that there is no conflict between loving God and loving one's country, between one's faith and one's public service. So obviously talking about the importance of a role for religion in the public square. Um, so just to kind of conclude here, how do you think uh, Scalia's teachings, whether it was in his opinions or speeches he gave, um, can kind of help promote this view that uh, while you know his Catholicism didn't necessarily influence how he interpreted text, it was the undergirding, was the foundation um, for how he his approach to the law and also the fact that there is a role for religion in the public square. Yeah. And by the way, the last line, um, the last line of that block quote from the homily, Father Paul Scalia says, God blessed him, Justice Scalia, with a desire to be the country's good servant because he was God's servant first. Yeah, so here you really do have, pointing back to St. Thomas More, the idea that it's not that you you are you have to choose between being a good servant to your country and a good servant to God. But rather, first and foremost, you're able to be a good servant to your country because you're a good servant to God, both because of the virtues that you're bringing to public life, but also because, as Scalia, again, to bring it back to the 86 um, speech, Scalia is pointing back to St. Paul's letter to the Romans and saying good Christians will um, – w- they will um, obey um, earthly government when it's just, and obviously that's it gets complicated. Um, um, but Scalia ultimately recognized that being a good Christian or trying to be a good Christian, um, it it helps you be a better American. We shouldn't see these things in conflict, and the, to right. the extent we do, to the extent we see these things in necessary and constant conflict with one another. <laughs> of course, there's going to be times when there's conflict between religion and your your duty and what your country asks of you. Mm. But it's not constant conflict. Mm. And to the extent we treat religion and um, democracy, or religion and other constitutional rights as being in constant conflict, and we we shove religion and moral beliefs off the stage, we're going to end up with a deformed version of a constitution, a deformed version of liberty, Mm. and and ultimately lose not just religion, but in the long run, lose constitutional liberty. Um, so now to close, we have a bit of an um, over-under. Having component. a little bit of fun here. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So overrated, underrated. We're going to throw some topics out. Um, oh, great. And see what you think. I, I think I know what you're going to say to this first one, Adam, but overrated, underrated, the administrative state. What would you say? Oh, okay. Definitely overrated, <laughs> except I'll say some of my conservative friends underestimate the need for administration and mm. public administration. I'd say generally overrated, but in right. some communities it's a little underrated. That's fair. All right. Okay. okay. Um, how about the age of reason, maybe particularly according to Jefferson, because he did write, he did blue pencil the Bible to render it a gospel fit <laughs> for the age of reason. So um, age of reason, totally overrated. And I will say, this is such a cliche, I don't know if I ever mentioned this in public, but um, as a college, I came to University of Iowa, as a, I was Catholic. And I stopped going to church for maybe three years after reading Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. I remember the chair I was sitting at when I read that book and I felt like, oh, the scales are falling from my eyes when in fact it was backwards. Um, But yeah, The Age of Reason is is an overrated book. Um, So Adam, I think you mentioned that you've done this before, but we've seen other people, Jonah Goldberg has done this, uh, reading a copy of National Affairs on a beach. Is that overrated or underrated? It is underrated. I've, I every once in a while will send um, an email to your colleague, Emily. I've done this a few times, sending photos of places I'm reading national affairs. And it tends That's to great. be either um, – because I take it with me when I visit family. Sure. Um, for the flight. So sometimes I'm with my in-laws at their place up in Upper Michigan, um, and I'm reading it there in the woods, or I'll be reading it 
um, on the beach uh, in South Carolina with my in-laws spend the winter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Is that is that your beach where you? That is. I actually go to their beach as well. Okay. It's a very it's a very nice place to relax. Yeah. Read about some policy. It's uh, national affairs fits in any uh, on you know carry on bag. It's great for travel. <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we could do one more. Um, yeah, sure. I will say people named Thomas. We <laughs> oh. talked about a few Thomases. Well, we almost named my son Thomas, and oh. then we chose a different name. <laughs> so I guess in that respect, I thought the name was a little overrated. Okay. Um, but I'm a big fan of the Who's, the rock band. I just can't believe I'm saying this. The rock band, the Who, had an album called Tommy. This preposterous oh, yes. r- rock opera, <laughs> and Tommy okay. is underrated. So. Oh, okay. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Okay. That's, nice. That was a nice segue. Okay. Uh, well, Adam, again, we appreciate your time, uh, you know, discussing your great piece. So it's really a pleasure to have you on here. Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for this, and, and thanks to National Affairs for publishing my essay. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so if you'd like to read uh, Adam's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. Our most recent issue contains essays on social capital and public policy, Lincoln's view of populism in our political institutions, putting economic dynamism in its place, and much more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. And if you'd like to read more of Adam's writing, you can find that at the Hoover Institution's website, as well as on Twitter at Adam J. White, D.C. Thanks so much for listening.